0: coming up on this episode of Here's an Idea.
1: Our approach is based on small building blocks, so you can think of them kind of like Legos. And the real goal is to have assemblers that can assemble assemblers out of the parts they're assembled from.
0: And what's been the reaction from people, especially traditional aircraft manufacturers?
1: Skepticism. From a first glance, it literally doesn't look like anything that anyone's ever seen before.
0: Hello, and welcome to Here's an Idea. I'm Billy Hurley here at Tech Briefs, and for the next few episodes, I'll be talking with researchers and engineers who are behind the latest innovations in space and aerospace technology. Today on the show, we have Ben Jeanette, a PhD student at MIT and a former space research fellow at NASA. Ben is working with NASA to develop a new kind of airplane wing called MadCat that's flexible and changes mid-flight. He's also working on tiny inchworm robots to do all the building for it. Ben, thanks for being with us. Hi, good morning. Ben, we're talking about flexible wing aircraft. Why is flexibility so important?
1: The typical analogy or the typical story is you have different flight conditions. So you have takeoff, cruise, and landing. And in each of those, you have different angles of attack uh, for maneuvering. You, you have different conditions that your, your wing is encountering. But because of the economics of traditional aircraft manufacturing, pretty much every aircraft wing and body shape is the same, uh, and that's just pure economics. But that means they're suboptimal. So as over the the duration of a flight, uh, not only are you encountering different flight conditions, but you're actually burning through fuel, so your mass is changing. So small shape changes in the wing can actually result in large efficiency gains. This is, of course, sacrificed for the practicality of building the same thing, the same shape uh, for all aircrafts. But if you can have an aircraft that can actively change its shape, then you can optimize its performance over a mission duration.
0: How did this idea for Mad Cat come about?
1: We were working with a a composite manufacturer who wanted to um, research better ways to glue composite parts together. But the approach that we took was to, rather than focus on a single joint, we decided to put joints everywhere. And by that, I mean we decided to decompose a monolithic composite structure into mass-produced smaller elements. The trick with that is if you engineer it properly, when you join these things together, it effectively behaves as a continuous material.
0: Can you help us kind of visualize this futuristic aircraft? What does it look like?
1: From afar, it looks like uh, a single material um and that's actually the interesting part about it when you have a sufficient number of these parts as a whole it behaves as a single material uh, when you get up close the building block unit is an octahedra um, so that's two tetrahedra stacked uh face to face and it's empty inside so it's just the edges and these edges are essentially beams and at every vertex uh there's a connection point to its neighbor So when you assemble them together, you have vertex-connected octahedra, uh, and this is what's known as a periodic lattice. And what's nice about these things is that they have a a very simple analytical description, so you can predict very accurately, very easily what the behavior is going to be like, and you can also tune that behavior.
0: So is the idea that when you tune it, it becomes more flexible?
1: Yeah, so maybe it's easiest to start with the uh, precursor to this very large wing, and when I say large, it's four and a half meters in span. A smaller version, which was a meter in span, um, looked at sort of a simpler construction method to make an anisotropic lattice structure that was stiff in bending, but compliant in torsion. And what that allowed us to do was to actively deform the wing with a torque tube going down the middle, and that would apply a tip twist. And in a traditional aircraft wing, you have control flaps, and those are controlled by very heavy uh, hydraulic uh, mechanisms. With our structure, you have a single degree of freedom, but because you have this continuous deformable structure, uh, the entire wing deforms in in what's known as morphing. So this is a shape-morphing structure and it's kind of like the wing of a bird where you have no breaks in geometry, and obviously that results in undesirable drag, Um, but you have a a high degree of control over the shape authority with a single degree of freedom for continuous shape deformation. So as I mentioned with the, the traditional manufacturing approaches, you have a single tool, and that tool makes a single geometry. For us, You can technically make any geometry that you want to. You can have the wing be shorter. You can have the wing be longer. You can have a thicker cord, a thinner cord. You can essentially come up with whatever geometry you want to and build it using these building blocks. And that's a really different way to approach building aircraft.
0: What activates the changes in the wing?
1: In the large-scale wing that we recently built, we actually did two types of um, shape change. One was active and one was passive. The active version used uh, a torque tube again, and that is a fairly efficient uh, system using um, a high torque servo sort of in the fuselage and then applying a twist to the, to the wing tip. What we also did is passive shape change. And in order to do that, again, we leveraged the, the heterogeneous approach where we had two different materials for the same building block geometry. One was a glass fiber reinforced plastic and one was just a regular plastic, and those have about an order of magnitude difference in stiffness. So what that means is you're making sort of a checkerboard pattern on the inside of the structure, and what that gives it again is these anisotropic properties that combined with simulation and FEA we determine the ways for the shape to change passively in response to aerodynamic load. So that means you're not expending energy to do actuation, But throughout the course of your um, flight simulation, or even for the wind tunnel testing for us, uh, you're showing the the wing respond passively and go from a suboptimal configuration to a more optimal configuration.
0: What are some of the drawbacks of traditional manufacturing methods, and how does your approach improve upon those traditional methods?
1: Um, Traditional aircraft wings are built uh, with monolithic materials, uh, obviously in segments, but you're using aluminum or composite, uh, and the most high-performance materials, which are composites, can be susceptible to errors in their manufacturing techniques. And they also rely on a fair amount of infrastructure. So you have a machine that's bigger than the part that it's laying up composite for, you have tooling that's, that's the size of the part. You have an autoclave that's bigger than the part. And then you have an airplane that's bigger than the part to transport the part for final assembly. Our approach is based on small building blocks. So you can think of them kind of like Legos. But in this case, they're made out of high-performance engineering material. And when you build them together, they result in this new set of mechanical properties that's not accessible with traditional manufacturing techniques. So this approach is called discrete assembly, and what we're assembling are uh, these building blocks that uh, are lattice elements. And a lattice is a a sparse, interconnected network of beams. Uh, You can kind of think of it like a truss structure, but lots and lots and lots of small trusses. So for us, we mass produce a single type of part and then build that into larger, high-performance structures. With the ability to make a very lightweight, very sparse and yet stiff and high strength material, the applications for aerospace are very desirable because it's such a mass critical field where uh, if you can save a kilogram in material, you're going to be expending less fuel and ultimately have uh, efficiency gains.
0: So when will this futuristic aircraft wing stop being futuristic and in a way, how soon do you expect to see this kind of aircraft wing in the air?
1: Right now, the work with NASA is actually focused on space applications. But the Center for Bits and Atoms (CBA) we're actively working with um, corporate sponsors to look at commercialization of this technology. So we're working with Airbus on doing a rapidly assembled drone system. And, you know, the drone scale is, is approximately three meters, but this is actually very appropriate in terms of scale for personal aircraft. So at some point in the future, we expect personal aircraft, transportation, to become sort of ubiquitous. But the question is, how do you build high-performance, low-cost uh, aero structures? So we think this is uh, one of those ways.
0: Let's talk a bit more about this building technique, this kind of Lego approach. Do you expect to see this kind of building block method used beyond aircraft manufacturing?
1: Absolutely. Uh, a colleague of mine, Will Langford, who just finished his PhD, had a cool... Uh, MIT news article about discreetly assembled robotic systems. So for our structural systems we have, you know, let's say stiff and compliant versions. Um, with his system he added uh, actuation and computation and was building micro robots out of them. And the real goal is to uh, sort of combine these approaches and have assemblers that can assemble assemblers out of the parts they're assembled from. So this is kind of a crazy goal but actually is very relevant for the manufacturing approach because if you have uh, small mobile robots that can assemble these structures and you want to ramp up production, you're going to want exponentially increasing your throughput through having more and more builders. And if the builders can build builders, then that essentially gets you to a dynamic range that's only seen in biological systems where ribosomes can build ribosomes And a 20 nanometer ribosome can build something as large as a blue whale only through this exponential
0: scaling. So is the idea that these kinds of robots will build the mad cat wing?
1: Yeah. So part of my thesis is looking at exactly that. And I've invented a new type of robot that's called Bill E. And because I work for NASA, I love acronyms. So Bill E stands for Bipedal Isotropic Lattice Locomoting Explorer. Um, It's a two footed sort of inchworm style robot that uh, basically steps one cell at a time. And when it's walking on this lattice structure, it can register to the lattice which means it doesn't need uh, long-distance metrology or sensing. So it can take an arbitrary number of steps, and as long as its single-step error is below the threshold of aligning with the lattice, it can do perfect locomotion, perfect execution for arbitrary distances. Um, What I'm doing now is developing a building block structure type that the robot can now assemble. So once you combine overall global precision being decoupled from the robot with um, robotic assembly, then you can actually scale up production to make something the size of a 747 without needing a machine the size of a
0: 747. You mentioned these robots briefly. Can you, again, kind of help us visualize these robots? What do they look like?
1: It's a two-footed robot with nothing but a pair of legs. Um, And all it does is take an inchworm-style step from one cell to the next, um, of course, its scale is relative to the building block scale. So for about a three-inch building block, the robot is about six inches long, let's say, because it needs to be able to step from one cell to the next. They're very simple. Um, they start with you know, 3D-printed parts for prototyping and then more high-fidelity materials built out of aluminum and some composite parts. But it's a very simple robot to build. And then simple programming, because it doesn't need to execute these very complex motions It literally only needs to take one step to the next cell. And by doing that successfully, again, it can take an arbitrary number of steps, and we're able to have a high degree of confidence in its ability to execute that.
0: So you're obviously keeping busy. What is a typical day for you? And is there a typical day for you?
1: I'm finishing my thesis, and my thesis focuses on the material systems, the robots that assemble them, and then the applications. So from the material system side, I'm doing CAD and FEA of parts to then get sent out to be injection molded to get hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them to come back to the lab where I'll then assemble them, put them on a mechanical testing machine to characterize them and then use that to tune uh, a global model of, of this digital material system. At the same time, I'm building robots sort of from scratch. Um, and these, uh, again, are not meant to be uh, complex, sophisticated robots that you see in industrial applications, but they're very, very simple. And the idea is that with a few degrees of freedom and a minimum amount of sensing, they can get what they need from the structure to execute their, their sort of mission objectives, which is to do assembly, locomotion, construction. Um, and then on the application side, as I mentioned, we're working with um, corporate sponsors. I, I mentioned Airbus. We're also working with Toyota to do assembly of uh, car structures. So uh, recently we built a race car out of these discrete lattice materials. And uh, the team in Japan, uh, I sh- we had the parts shipped over there. The team did the assembly, and then they raced it in a super mileage vehicle race. So we're spanning from sort of novel material system, design, computation, fabrication, robotic assembly, and then real world implementation, which is actually very important for this because it's not staying in the lab. It's not only on the computer. It's rapidly getting out there into the world and it seems like it's actually getting a decent amount of traction.
0: What are the challenges when you have kind of a brand new take on a traditional technology like aircraft wings? What advice would you give our engineering audience uh, we're largely folks making new products all the time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say um, aircraft structures are pretty difficult to begin with um, just because of the high performance that's required of them and additionally sort of the risk-averse nature of the industry, um, which with good reason, because people are flying on planes and, um, you know, there's there's humans involved. I would say that you know, reducing things to first principle understanding is very important because that allows you to sort of uh, extract the key parameters of what it is you're looking at, whether it's a structural mechanics standpoint or a dynamic standpoint, um, boiling it down to the core principles of what the system is. And that allows you to sort of, uh, I would say, see things from a higher level because you can definitely get lost in the detail of, what are you going to make it out of, how much does it cost, Um, how are you going to build it, all these things that spiral out of what is the actual performance and what is that performance tied to. And perhaps that's just a slight benefit of our approach, which is, you know, we're not tied to any particular uh, manufacturing constraint. As I said, we can sort of build arbitrary geometries with arbitrary performance metrics, and that's a nice thing to be able to do because, in in traditional aircraft manufacturing, you're, you are limited from a cost standpoint to certain geometries, let's say, but also from a manufacturing standpoint, uh, you can't make any shape out of any material at, you know, uh, any different configuration just because of, as I mentioned, sort of the stochastic error involved, the potential for the part to not come out correctly. So... <laughs> For people who don't use this building block approach, I would say that um, sort of thinking about decoupling the requirements of the material of the structure and of the system is a nice thing to do as long as you're able to thread those together back in the end for an actual fabricatable
0: system. How did you test this aircraft wing? Can you bring us into that experience in 2018 when you brought this wing to NASA?
1: As we built this 4.5-meter wing... The And uh, we did the wind tunnel testing at NASA Langley, uh, which is in Virginia. So we had to build the, the two half spans of the wings, put them in crates, ship them to Langley, and then put them inside their 14-foot by 22-foot subsonic wind tunnel. Um, they were, I would say, confused slightly by what our structure is because it just doesn't look typical. It, it looks sort of like uh, an aerogel, um, meaning like it's, it's sort of this... Um, cloud like material, um, but when you look very closely at it it 's made up of these small beams that are interconnected um, but for them was not a typical aero structure so we had to do some rigorous reporting of um, and which is par for the course of of how does the structure behave how is it going to fail what happens if it fails but the funny thing is uh, we maxed out the wind tunnel so we did um, quasi static loading at uh nasa ames where we did a whiffle tree system and a whiffle tree is a sort of a branching load distribution uh, device that allows a single point load to be distributed to in this case a wing to simulate uh the pressure distribution of a flight condition and this is done for uh, traditional aircraft in very very large factories but for us we mounted a, a load cell to a crane and then uh, mounted a, a high-torque linear servo to that load cell and then tugged on this network of cables. So we knew, we knew how the structure was going to behave. We had good experimental results. We had good simulation results. Um, but in the wind tunnel, we actually went outside of our expected performance regime um, into high angles of attack, very high lift-to-drag ratios, and uh, essentially maxed out the wind tunnel, which was pretty cool.
0: So what's the status of the MADCAT project now? Uh, What's next? Yeah, I mean, so
1: we published the results of MADCAT v1 as well as MADCAT v0. And both of those papers can be found on the CBA website, cba.mit.edu. And these publications kind of compile the results of our experimental testing, as well as projecting what are the potential cost savings for manufacturing structures in this way. To be honest, you know, uh, it's a it's an interesting field to be working in because there is a fair amount of institutional inertia from the aerospace industry in terms of rapidly accepting a new uh, manufacturing strategy, which which from an outside observer looks kind of crazy. Which is, you have these like super lightweight uh, uh, gossamer structures. How can those possibly? Um, outperform, you know, a solid chunk of aluminum. But what is happening now, again, is it's getting more traction, meaning like we we proved out this crazy idea. We built this, this really amazing thing. And now we're reducing the cost of what it takes to manufacture these systems. We're ramping up the automation. And it seems like uh, the commercial applications with industrial partners is uh, coming more into focus. So, whether that's going to be with NASA or whether that's going to be through university and industrial partners, uh, we'll see. But um, the point is, uh, these two Mad Cat projects showed that you can do this. Now, combined with the robot automation, you're really going to have a platform that will allow you to build high-performance, sort of low-cost, arbitrarily configured structures for wind turbines, for bridges, for housing. Um, and... You know, this is obviously coming from a person who really believes in this approach because this is what I'm writing my thesis on. But I do see it proliferating out into a number of different applications, not only in aerospace, but uh, in a number of terrestrial applications as well.
0: And what's been the reaction from people, especially traditional aircraft manufacturers?
1: Skepticism. (laughs) I mean, uh, the interesting thing is uh, once they read through the literature and once they see Sort of the calculations that we do, the, the uh, testing and measurements that we do, they start to understand it. But from a first glance, it, it literally doesn't look like anything that anyone's ever seen before. So skepticism is a fine response. You know, it's, it's a safe response. But the point is the numbers speak for themselves. And once the, the barrier for entry in terms of mass producing these structures... Uh, gets below a certain threshold uh, you know, it's going to take off
0: All right, Ben Jeanette, thanks for being with us today
1: Awesome, thank you very much
0: To our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about the Mad Cat technology, you can go to our episode page at techbriefs.com slash podcast At techbriefs.com slash podcast, you can also download all of our previous episodes of Here's an Idea You can also get all of our episodes from your favorite podcast provider like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher I'm Billy Hurley, thanks for being with us on Here's an Idea.